0: Your scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you came together, it is not for the better, but for the worst for in the first place. When you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together. It is not the Lord's supper that you eat. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things I will give direction when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
1: When I came up earlier, the The podium was about this height, so we're starting off better this time. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We need you. May you bless the preaching of your word this morning. May it be for our good and your glory. May we take from your word what you would have us take, Lord. May we remember it. Um, May our lives here as Pillar family glorify you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Good morning, Pillar. My name is David Sutherland. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar. Um, I'm excited to bring you God's word this morning. I'm even more excited because I get to choose the passage. Um, For those of you who are on top of things, you know that we are resuming our series in 1 Corinthians. If you're even further on top of things, you'll know that the next passage in the shoot is the first half of 1 Corinthians 11. That passage is on head coverings. Um, I told John I'm not doing it. So we am leaving it to the professionals. So guess what you guys get to learn about next week? Head coverings. So be excited, be here, be ready. John, I don't know if you made it in here yet, but good luck. So. All right, so, but first we've got to get through this sermon. Today we're going to talk about unity as believers. About being a unified family in a fractured city. We're going to talk about that unity in the context of the Lord's Supper. The main point for our sermon today is this. Real communion consists of a unified body of believers sitting down, eating, and drinking together as one family, remembering and declaring Christ's death while waiting for his return. We practice this communion in the midst of a fallen world. We are sojourners in a foreign land. We are in reality a set-apart body. We as Christians are the body of Christ. Paul says that for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, PFC or Colonel, college educated or not, We are all fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. We are the body of Christ. We are adopted into the family of God permanently. If we have truly repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are part of the body of Christ. The moment we are saved, we are transferred into the kingdom of Christ. We are now unified in him. It was, uh, it was Peter who called us sojourners in a foreign land. This foreign land has fallen, look around you. Look at the news, the world is crazy and broken. The world is made up of haves and have not, have nots. There's mass poverty and excessive wealth. There are fractured political systems Racial strife is rampant. The sex trade is a booming business. Divorce is an everyday occurrence. Drugs are tearing our society apart. There are wars, terrorist conflicts. Indeed, sin has tainted everything. 2020 only reinforced this idea. After 2020, I hope we all know that if our hope is in this world, then our hope is severely misplaced. These problems are not new. The Corinthians were living in this same world. So was the Apostle Paul. And Paul, in this context, wanted the Corinthians to live a certain way despite their circumstances. Now, because we took a month or so off in our Corinthian series, I'd like to, take, to offer a summary of what we've seen thus far as I think our passage today fits well into that pattern, that overall narrative in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, we've seen three primary things, three primary themes. The first theme we have seen is that the Corinthians were not acting like a unified family. There was a gap between who they were in Christ and how they were acting. How they were acting did not jive with who they were. The Corinthians were suing each other. They were clinging to their celebrity pastors. They were condoning the practice of disruptive sexual activity and the list goes on. The Corinthians actions were not unifying actions. The second theme in 1 Corinthians is Paul correcting those actions. Line by line, Paul has addressed these actions and discussed how to deal with them in light of the fact that the Corinthians were one unified body of believers. Paul is calling them to act unified. Paul wanted them to become who they were, who they are, a unified body in a broken world, which is the third theme, the third theme of 1 Corinthians is that Christian uh, Christian unity is a reality. Christian unity is a reality. Christians are unified in Christ. Not because of of our actions, but because of Christ's actions. Paul says that we, who are many, are one body. We're baptized into that body, we're baptized into Christ. Christ is the source of everything. And we are in him, we are God's temple. This reality is not only a mainstay in Paul's books, but also in the entire New Testament. So the three themes of 1 Corinthians so far are, one, Paul calls the Corinthians out for not acting unified. Two, he calls them to act unified. Three, he tells them they are unified. These three themes are clearly seen in our passage today. Paul's tone in this passage is emotional and passionate. Some theologians call Paul's tone here biting rhetoric or rhetorical discipline. Whatever you call it, Paul does not hold back the language he uses which is hard to capture exact precisely in english is very harsh so let's pull up verses 17 to 19 but in the following instructions i do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worst for in the first place when you come together as a church i hear that there are divisions Among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Here Paul is saying that what should be for the better is actually for the worst. Their disunity in their everyday lives had now spilled over into their worship. Paul is saying that what should have been a time of unity and joy and worship was actually a time of division and sadness. Look, as Christians, we gather together for good reasons, good results. Worship should be sanctifying, life-giving, worshipful, joyful. Otherwise, we wouldn't gather as a church what would be the purpose. The Corinthians' actions in their worship defeated that purpose. What was supposed to be unifying was actually dividing. Let's read verses 20 to 22. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For context here, the the Corinthians would apparently meet regularly in each other's homes in smaller gatherings, kind of like our modern-day small groups, or as we call them, missional communities. However, periodically, they would gather as an entire church, likely uh, every Sunday at a person's house. By necessity, this was a rich person's house, so it could be big enough to host them all. At this gathering, they would practice the Lord's Supper. In this case, case, though, it was not the Lord's Supper at all. The divisions at that supper were anti-Christian, anti-gospel, anti what the supper should be. Some were eating and drinking in excess, while the poor sat around and watched, feeling shamed and hungry. This is kind of unimaginable, but apparently the rich were having a drunken feast right in front of the poor, while the poor had just enough to eat and drink to say they participated. Of note, Paul condemns drunkenness and gluttony elsewhere in scripture. But Paul was not addressing those issues here. Paul was calling them out for their divisions. They were eating and drinking to the shame of the poor. Paul says, this is not even the Lord's Supper you are having. The Lord's Supper is a time to come into together and ignore or embrace our differences. Ignore our statuses, our races, our intellectual spectrum. Instead, we are gathered to remember Christ, to celebrate our unity in him. The way the Corinthians were doing communion was antithetical to what real communion should be. We'll see this as our passage continues, where Paul describes real communion. Let's read verses 23 to 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We see a few things here. One, real communion consists of sharing a common source of bread and drink. We can read too much into this, and many theological divides and means of communion have been sourced from this passage. Maybe there is some theological inference here, And I think there's a time to discuss those things. But let's pull out what is explicit. Real communion is a shared meal of bread and drink. The second thing I'd like to point out is that real communion consists of remembering Christ's death, Christ's great sacrifice for us. Consider verses 24 and 25 where Jesus says, through the bread and the cup, remember me. This is actually a worship theme in uh, all of Scripture. Throughout all of Scripture, we see it remembering and then symbolically acting out that memory. We do this through the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. The third thing we see is that communion consists also of declaring that death. Verse 26 says that through the Lord's Supper... We proclaim the Lord's death. Communion is a means of sharing the gospel. It points out that Christ died for all types of people. Our unity at the table demonstrates that Christ died for us, regardless of our societal status. Finally, verse 26 says, We proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Real communion is done in anticipation of Christ's return. As a unified family in a fractured city, we are living in excited anticipation of Christ's return. As discussed earlier, we're sojourners in a foreign land. We are undocumented aliens. Well, until we do communion, that is. Communion documents our status. We are declaring Christ's death, and we are doing so to... So together, until Christ returns, we know our Savior Savior will return, and we long for that day. Until then, we live in unity, waiting for him. So this is real communion. A unified body of believers sitting down, eating and drinking as one family, remembering, declaring, and waiting together. Let's finish reading our passage by reading verses 27 to 34. Verses 27 to 34. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself When I come. This is a fascinating portion of the New Testament. This is an explicit example of God's temporal discipline for an abuse of Christian worship. These kinds of punishments were rampant in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were punished for improper worship. However, we don't see them that often in the New Testament. This is interesting. Are we really open to the idea that we could be disciplined for a failure to worship properly? Is that a thing we think about in Protestant Christianity? I'm not sure what that looks like, could look like a lot of things, but if this verse is, is taken at face value, then it certainly is a possibility. What Paul is saying here is that if communion is not done in unity, then we will be judged and disciplined by God. Per verse 29, we must discern the body of believers and make sure that we are unified in our practice. Consider verses uh, 27 to 29 again. I don't think we capture the gist of what Paul is saying if we don't read these as one thought. The word for at the beginning of verse 29 is key. Let's read it again. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 29 says that we execute the Lord's Supper wrong if we don't consider the body of believers we are with. In the context of this passage, Paul is not describing proper communion as merely a time of personal introspection and personal confession to God. Paul is describing proper communion as done in unity and unison with other believers. Not done in unity, God will discipline us. Please note, though, this discipline is corrective in nature, not final judgment. In verse 32, Paul says, in this case, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. While most suffering in the New Testament is for different purposes, the suffering the Corinthians were experiencing in this case was directly related to their sins. It was related to their abuse of the body of Christ. This passage indicates that God takes communion seriously. He wants us to mentally and physically remember and declare his son's sacrifice together in unity. Let's consider some some takeaways this morning. Some of us have some baggage when it comes to communion, don't we? The Lord's Supper can be a bit confusing depending on which tradition we grew up in or which church we attend back in the States. Some of us may dread communion because we're concerned that we may not be worthy to partake. Some of us are accustomed to a very formal practice of the Lord's Supper. To some of us, communion is this abstract event that's just a bit confusing some of us had to meet strict requirements before being able to partake some of us to some of us communion's no big deal it's this casual event to which we haven't given much thought there are a lot of things to think about when it comes to the lord's supper and it can all be a bit confusing paul doesn't want us to have this confusion though I hope we can all leave here today with a better understanding of the boy, beauty and joy of true communion. I'd like us to leave here remembering four primary things. One, the Lord's Supper is not complicated. Two, the Lord's Supper is important. Three, the Lord's Supper is something we are never worthy to take. Four, the Lord's Supper is amazing. It is really a beautiful event if, take, if we have the right perspective. Takeaway number one, the Lord's Supper is not complicated. It's simply not complicated. As fallen, as fallen people, we have made the Lord's Supper a complex event. We have, we have many questions surrounding it, such as, are the bread and wine the actual body and blood of Jesus, or are they just, do they just symbolically represent that? Am I worthy to participate? Uh, Should we all drink from the same cup and eat from the same loaf? This list could go on due to the historical debates surrounding the Lord's supper. There is a lot of mystery. However, if you read our passage today and other passages about communion, these questions and confusion really come from trying to read too much into the text. If the Lord wanted us to have a narrow view of what right communion looks like, he would have spelled that out. Just look at the Old Testament. God was very prescriptive when it came to their worship. I argue that when we look too much into these passages, we detract from the actual point of the meal. We miss the forest on account of the trees. We have probably gone too far when we have church splits and divides over the mode and manner of the Lord's Supper. I know that these debates come from a desire to do things right. But there's a lot of grace to be had in what right looks like because the Lord did not give us enough details to have a closed-handed stance on the issue. Put succinctly, The only thing that is absolutely explicit in Scripture is that the Lord's Supper consists of a unified body of believers consuming bread and drink together. I think this is important for us to take away this morning because when we focus on the nuance, we miss the point of the Lord's Supper. Takeaway number two the Lord's Supper is important. First of all, Paul calls it the Lord's Supper. This supper belongs to the Lord. Secondly, Paul uses very harsh language in his rebuke of the Corinthians. Finally, the Lord considered his supper important enough to discipline his children over. So please don't confuse uncomplicated with unimportant. The Lord of the, the, Lord of the universe and his apostle, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, considered it very important. Important. We should consider it important as well. Takeaway number three. The Lord's Supper is not something we are worthy to take. We will never be worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. None of us are. We can never earn the right to partake of the Lord's Supper. Jesus earned that right for us. The only reason we can take communion is because Jesus earned that right for us. Which is the point of the gospel and the point of communion. We are declaring Christ's work for us. The true Christian life is a life marked with faith and repentance. Our faith in Christ's work is what qualifies us to partake, not our performance. The Corinthians were rebuked for not being unified, and that is the incorrect manner in which they were partaking. They were rebuked for taking it in an unworthy manner, not that they were unworthy themselves. How do we know this? Because we are never Worthy. So our three takeaways thus far are, one, the Lord's Supper is not complicated. Two, the Lord's Supper is important. Three, the Lord's Su- Supper is not something we are ever worthy to take. Our fourth and final takeaway, I would argue, is the most important takeaway. If you leave here remembering nothing, remember this. The Lord's Supper, when done right, is a beautiful Thing, it's an it is an amazing experience that is hard to match. When we come together, and and partake of the Lord's Supper as a unified family, it is for our good and His glory. Look, as I mentioned earlier, we are physically living in a broken world that only offers fleeting moments of hope and joy. As the Scripture says, "Vanity of vanity, all is vanity." In this broken world, all we have are each other and Christ. Nothing captures that better than the Lord's Supper. This is the gospel. We are broken because of sin. The world is broken because of sin. Pre-repentance and faith, we belong to that world. A world separated from God. And separation from God is an ugly thing. There's only ugliness apart from God divisiveness, classism, racism, brokenness, poverty, suffering, failing political systems. But now as Christians, we are part of a different world, a world where we have a reliable hope. We are in a new kingdom, a new family. That is what we are remembering and declaring through the Lord's Supper We are remembering that Christ's death is why we are a unified family. And through communion, we are declaring that we are in this family. We are saying to the world, Christ has saved us. We are a unified family in a fractured city. And during this temporary world with a joy that cannot be expressed. We must remember Christ died for us and through him we have true hope. Look, this world is sad. It's broken. People suffer around us regularly. This unity Paul is calling for helps us reset our hope without each other and without Christ, we will be lost and broken. Sure, there will be times of temporary unhappiness and suffering, but in the end, we know that we have a beautiful eternity ahead of us. Communion helps us remember and declare that reality together while we are waiting. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, we need you. Uh, We thank you for your supper. And for the message that it proclaims. We thank you that it reminds us of our desperate need for your son. We thank you for this pillar family. We thank you for, the, um, for Christianity as a whole, Christians as a whole. May um, we all declare your greatness and your sacrifice this, this weekend as a family. In Jesus' name, amen.